Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, my name is Kirk, and I'm the planting pastor here uh, at Christ the King. Super grateful for you guys to uh, to be here. I feel like we are um, kind of settled in at this point into the summer flow, and it's about to go crazy, right? Because um, we're just a few weeks from uh, from class starting back, and everybody. Uh, making their way uh, back to Carrollton. And so um, I don't know about you, I always enjoy uh, kind of the, the August, you know, through December and then that first part of the year when it seems like Carrollton just comes to life, man. It just seems like there's a lot that's going on here and a lot of people and, you know, bustling about. And so uh, excited about that. I hope everybody had an awesome uh, weekend. Um, yeah, and we're here this morning and we're back in Mark chapter 6. Um, I want to say thank you to Abby for leading us this morning. Abby is uh, from our sending church, uh, Glenlock Baptist Church. And so um, with uh, Jacqueline continuing her way up like the eastern seaboard, like on this um, church planning, uh, uh, church planning, what do you call it? Like a extravaganza is probably the best word for it, yeah. Um, this this church planning tour, um, I guess if you will, like we've been without her for a couple of weeks. China led last week and did a, did a great job. She's back home before the craziness of, of classes starting back and the start of the semester kind of begins. And uh, so Abby leading us this morning was, uh, was wonderful. Super grateful for her to come and, and do that. Um, we are in Mark chapter 6. It has been... Um, man, a total joy to be in Mark uh, for the first six months of our existence. And so, um, believe it or not, we are about halfway through at this point. We're like halfway through uh, through our first series uh, in, in Mark. Um, and it's been a great couple of weeks, man. Mark 6 is full of, uh, of, just, of just goodness. It's, it's just goodness everywhere in Mark chapter 6. There's been a lot that's been going on. Um, and so I thought in the beginning we might review a little bit where we've been over the past couple weeks as we work our way into verses 45 through 52 this morning in which we see the lordship of Jesus over nature, right? The whole first half of Mark, I feel like we're just being introduced again and again and again to Jesus, to the person of Jesus, to the deity of Jesus, to the character of Jesus. Those are some things that we talked about uh, last week as we saw the generosity of God in the feeding of the 5,000. Um, and so we're, we're learning a lot, man. We're learning a lot about who Jesus is. We're being confronted with this again and again and again each week. Um, last week, um, we, we saw, again, the feeding of the 5,000, the generosity of God. Jesus and his followers, both individually and corporately, have been moving in and out of the region over the past chapter and a half. Um, and this week, we see a beautiful and powerful display of Christ's deity and his compassion for his people. And you say, wait, that sounds a lot like last week, to which we would say, yeah, absolutely. We're like just pounding away week after week after week on the character of God. And so um, this week, as we, come into, uh, as we come into this portion of Mark chapter 6, we again see the compassion of of Jesus. Last week, the compassion of Jesus and that he looks out upon uh, the masses gathered before him and he has compassion on them, right? Because they are like sheep without a shepherd. We're confronted with our spiritual condition apart from um, Christ's pursuit of us, right? Um, shepherdless sheep, right? Sheep that are just marching towards an inevitable end, right? Destruction. Um, and so, Man, what a, what a great passage last week, and we're continuing in that flow this week as we look at Christ and his, his lordship over nature. Four things that we're going to see this morning. Four things. And we're going to be really, really heavy on like one and probably three, okay? And so don't be like overwhelmed, especially as we work through the first observation because it's going, we're going to spend some time there, okay? Um, so number one, the mission of Christ. Uh, that's the first thing that we're going to see this morning from uh, from Mark chapter 6, 45 through 52, the mission of Christ. Second, the intercession of Christ, Christ in prayer upon the mountain. Um, thirdly, the assurance of Christ. And then finally, the persistence of Christ, the patient 
persistence of Christ is the last thing that we're going to see in this passage this morning. And so let us go, man, to Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45 uh, and working our way down through verse 52. Uh, By the way, um, I meant to mention this earlier on, but we are going to spend quite a bit of time in this passage this morning. And so if you don't have a Bible and you would like one, um, there are Bibles up front. Our gift to you, feel free to grab one of those um, and and take advantage of it this morning. It'll also be on the screen for you uh, though as well. So beginning in Mark chapter 6, verse 45, this is the word of the Lord. Immediately he, he being Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Verse 47, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately... He spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Hey, would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for your uh, goodness and for your grace and for uh, your word. We pray that by the power of your spirit this morning, you might open our hearts and our minds, our ears and our eyes to the truth uh, that we see uh, communicated here, that we might, um, as we conclude our time, uh, occupy a, a position of adoration and worship for you in light of what we see about you here in this passage. Encourage our hearts um, and convict us this morning, bringing us to a a place of ultimate hope and joy in you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, let us uh, begin by looking at the mission of Christ displayed for us in verse 45 of Mark chapter 6. The mission of Christ Okay, if that's a little bit confusing for you, don't worry. We're going we're gonna to define it. But I want us to look at the mission of Christ in two aspects as it relates to what we see in verse 45. First, the commitment to the mission, right? Christ's commitment to the mission being his death for his people. That's the first thing that we're going to tackle. The second part that we're going to look at is this the transformation of his people, Christ's mission on two planes. First, the the, the death and, and ultimately the resurrection that would bring about the forgiveness of sins as well as the transformation of his people. Jesus is committed to both of these things. And we see that displayed here in verse 45. Look at verse 45 with me. Immediately he, again being Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. So he's sending these guys out, right, Uh, to follow at some later point behind them uh, to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And so everything's breaking up from all that we had seen taking place uh, last week as the 5,000 are fed, and we see that Jesus is committed to the mission, that Jesus, okay, is committed to the cross. And so when we talk about the mission of Christ, let us, let us see it in light of where we know that he is going, right? Christ is on his way to the cross, even now. Right? He's on his way to the cross, and he remains committed to the work that is to be accomplished there, even here in Mark chapter 6. Jesus has just fed what is recorded in the Gospels as 5,000 men, but it was likely closer to fifteen or 20,000 given the presence of women and children. And he has fed these people by supernatural Means He had multiplied five loaves of bread and two fish to feed a mass of people. 
And he's done so, again, out of a heart of compassion for their spiritual condition. And as a result of this supernatural work that's taken place just prior to where we find ourselves this morning, there is, based on what we see in John's account, a desire by many to seize Jesus and to catapult him by force into a position of political power and authority. We see this explicitly in John chapter 6, verses 12 through 15. And so let's jump over briefly. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen as I read. We're going to jump over to John's recording of this, of this account and what we see uh, in relation to the people and their mentality towards Jesus that helps inform our understanding, hang with me, of his commitment to the mission, Okay. Here's what it says in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, so we're backtracking a little bit, right? We're back into last week. We're preaching last week all over again. Uh, When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost, right? That none of these elements that have been multiplied will be lost and that what I have accomplished might not be lost on you, right? That you would truly see the abundant nature of the work that I have just accomplished. So they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And so this helps inform our understanding of how the people are tracking along with Jesus as this miracle has just been performed. What do I mean by that? Okay, there is no one amongst the group that is confused about the means by which they have just enjoyed this meal, okay? What do I mean by that? Well, there's no one that is somewhere sitting amongst this mass of people going, how in the world did they pack all of these bread and fish in to feed us? Like, this is a lot of food. Based on what we see in John's account, there's a very clear understanding that something supernatural, that something miraculous has just taken place, that Jesus has taken these five loaves and these two fish, he's multiplied them, and he has fed a stadium full of people, okay? That's not lost on anyone. And we see that emphasized in John chapter 6, verse 15. So we see where the mind of the people are. They're in awe and amazement, right? Dude, this is the one we've been waiting for. This This is the one that has come, that is going to liberate us, that is going to set us free, that is going to exercise lordship and dominion and power over our enemies. We have been oppressed, but man, this guy is about to set all things into right order, okay? And we are going to benefit greatly from that. And so, hey, let us let us bring this guy, I mean, let us make him king. Verse 15, perceiving then, Jesus, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the, the desire of the crowds is what? Based on what we see in John chapter 6, the desire of the crowd is to go and to seize Jesus and to make him king here and now. And Jesus rejects this. Jesus rejects it. And Jesus rejects this because he is in tune ultimately with the will of the Father and he is committed to his plan. Right now, there is a sense in which Jesus is king now, in that his word is authoritative and that he exercises his sovereignty, right? His power, his his dominion over even the elements of this world. But there is also a sense in which Jesus will be king. And before Jesus takes his place upon the throne that the Father has prepared for him, a throne that shall never be moved, a throne that will never pass away, he must first attend to the business of the Father. Indeed, there is a throne awaiting him, but there is a cross before Right, so, so let's be super clear 
at this point on the mission of Christ, right? The mission of Jesus. Let's bullet point a few things that we can say, I believe, confidently in light of what we read um, in the canon of Scripture. Number one, hey, what is the mission of Christ? Well, the glorification of the Father, right? The glorification of the Father. The life and the work of Jesus is designed to both rescue us and lead us into a place in which we would offer glory to God. That this would be this would glorify Him. This would glorify the Father. This work that Jesus is accomplishing for His people. If we look at the Sermon on the Mount. We can say that Jesus' mission is the fulfillment of the law and all the ways that God's people have failed and broken covenant, right? Christ is committed. As he was going about his earthly ministry, there began to be a number of rumors that were going around about Jesus. And one of those was that Jesus has come to abolish the law, that he's doing away with the law, to which Jesus responds, no, that's not the case at all. I haven't come to abolish the law, but in fact, I've come to fulfill the law, right? Fulfillment to the law that leads us back into right relationship with God, right? That brings about redemption and, and reconciliation, forgiveness of sin. Right, an avoidance of, of taking upon ourselves God's wrath and instead receiving grace and, and goodness and mercy. Right? This is what Jesus has come to accomplish based on what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not abolishing it, but he's fulfilling it, and he's fulfilling it ultimately for our sake and to the glory of the Father. So what does all this bring about? Well, it continues our understanding the progression of the mission of Jesus, both to glorify the Father, to fulfill the law, and to rescue his people through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. Right, to, to seek and to save that which is lost. If we take this imagery of Jesus as the good shepherd, we see him indeed calling his people into the fold. Right, shepherding them, gathering a people together, and then leading them, guiding them, shepherding them. At that point, when all of this has been accomplished... Christ's mission upon the earth would be finished. And so we see Jesus here, right, aware that his mission is not over and that the physical bread that had been broken was incapable of addressing the greater need of the people. Jesus rejects the opportunity for comfort and earthly acclaim as the people desire to take him and make him king now. And he does so in a display of love and obedience. Again, overcoming temptation and displaying perfect obedience to the will of the Father. And now let us consider what the obedience of Christ means for him. What will he experience? What will he encounter in light of this commitment to uh, the obedience of God's, God's will, the Father's plan and purpose. Well, here's a few. Suffering, right? Rejection and death upon a cross. That is what comes out on the other side of Christ's obedience to this plan of, of the Father that has been, has been organized and orchestrated before the foundations of the world, right? To reconcile a people in the face of popular opinion get this here in the face of popular opinion Jesus as the shepherd of this people instructs his disciples to get into the boat and to begin making their way to the other side and it is here that we are yet again confronted with the standard of God and our inability, right? God demands what? God demands perfect obedience to his word, right? In this case, perfect submission to his will and plan. See the success of Christ as the standard that you and I, in and of ourselves, are incapable of achieving. The eyes of Christ out of a pure heart Remain submissive to the Father's will. That's huge. This is huge for us to understand the mentality and the mind behind Christ at this particular moment. And so we see, yes, first, 
Jesus' commitment to the mission. We see Jesus' commitment to the cross, that there is a crown to be had, but Jesus is going through the cross in order to obtain it. Do we see that? The second thing that we see is Jesus' commitment to the transformation of his people. Here, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus takes control of what would best be described as a potentially volatile situation. Okay, he, he rejects the earthly crown that the people desire to place upon his head and makes, do you see that in verse 45? He makes his followers get into a boat and set out across a sea. And he does so, we've read the whole passage, we're about to unpack it a little bit more in depth. He does so knowing that they would encounter trouble. Right, these disciples are exactly where Jesus wants them to be. And it will be challenging, and it will be difficult, and it will be terrifying. Look at me, look at with me at verse 46. Verse 46. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain uh, to, to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on land, and he saw that they were making headway, but they were doing so painfully. Now, we're going to talk more about this in just a moment, but I want us to see the whole story. I want us to understand what we're talking about when we speak of Christ's commitment to the transformation of his people. Charles Spurgeon said this about this particular account. He says, their sailing was not merely under his sanction." but instead his expressed command. They were in the right place, and yet what? They were met with a terrible storm. They were exactly where Christ desired that they would be, and yet they met great difficulty. And it is this right here, this account, this story that we see nestled away here in Mark chapter 6, in which we see God's sovereignty totally transforming the way that we understand situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in, in this life. Not resulting from sin, but instead obedience. This changes everything, right? This, this transforms our understanding of the pain, difficulty, suffering, uh, trial, right, that we experience in this life. Because we see that those things aren't necessarily brought about only right, from, from sinful decisions and actions, although we can all attest to, yeah, like I've experienced some difficult things in my life as a result of sinful decisions that I have made. But what we see here is that in obedience to the call of Christ that the disciples experience something that is indeed difficult, that it is indeed challenging. And so I want us to ask this question of ourselves, Right? Does your understanding of God's authority over every molecule that makes up you and I, existence and, and space, of his knowledge of the end before it begins, does it translate not only into passages but into personal experience? Let's ask it this way. Okay? Do you believe that an all-powerful, all-knowing God not only allows difficulty in your life, but out of an overflow of love for you, sends you in to difficulty? Do you believe that? Right? And let's, let's, let's consider for a moment how Mark 6 would inform the way that we answer that question. Because I think here, are we see with a redemptive purpose in mind that God indeed providentially places his people into difficulty so that one's faith and confidence in him might what? That our faith and confidence in him might grow in a way that only difficulty would bring about. I think that we could all attest to this, right? We could go around the room and we could all raise our hand and we could share personal experiences of difficulty that we would say brought us closer to the Father, brought us closer to God in a way that, that no other experience could. Difficult seasons of life, 
right, that, that bolster our faith, right, that, that bring us into a position of worship before Christ that had things continued on smooth sailing, we never would have been brought to. Do we see this? In light of this, I think that we have to transform, we have to see transformed, we have to change our understanding of God's working in our lives and say this, that God is committed to the personal holiness of his people. Let's say that again, right? That that God is committed to the personal holiness of his people, an increased faith and a renewed confidence, a posture of supreme contentment and joy in him. It is in this place that God is most glorified and our greatest happiness is realized. Consider what we see from many of Paul's letters recorded from prison, right? He says again and again and again that that his joy, even in the midst of difficult circumstance, is complete. Right? He says that he has learned to be content in plenty and in want. Right? That he, he is, understands, he, he has found the secret to contentment. Anybody else struggle with that? Right? Man, we look for contentment everywhere, right? In things, in relationships, right? Prestige, honor, recognition. And what we find based on much of the New Testament, right, is that contentment is found ultimately in in Christ and in Christ alone. And when we find contentment, this ultimate contentment that is found, that is established, that is rooted, that is built upon Him, right, that nothing in the world is capable of stealing it, that nothing can take it, that nothing can rust it and nothing can rob it, right, that it is fixed, that it is sure. Man, it's a, it's a position, it's a posture of great confidence, right? And, and, and hope, knowing that that is indeed true. John Piper says it this way. I'll never forget like the first time I heard this quote. And it's what we've been saying. I just said it in about 50 words and he says it in like eight. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples through this experience. This is what Jesus is teaching his disciples through this encounter. We've already seen one turbulent scene at sea, haven't we? Right? The waves are big and Jesus has crashed out in the front of the boat and the disciples are freaking out, right? You guys remember this. And we said as we came out of that passage that that the desired response is a a position of contentment and trust in and faith in Jesus that no matter what happens, man, that we are going to be okay. Even if that means that we're not going to be okay. Do you know what I mean by that? Right? Because we're talking about like heavenly realm and we're talking about earthly realm. In the heavenly realm, we talk about death being, being something that, man, we will all inevitably, apart from the return of Christ, experience, right? But it is something that does not have us by the throat. Why? Because of the hope of the gospel, right? Because of the hope of the gospel. And so if we die, while the world might look at that and say, man, that is not okay, man, we say, no, oh, man, that's okay, Right? Like, like death doesn't, doesn't, death has been robbed of its sting at the cross, right? Like the empty tomb proves that. And so we see Jesus again encouraging this within his disciples, bringing them to a, to a posture of recognition of the satisfaction that is found in him and in him alone. Let's continue on. The second thing that we see, the intercession of Christ, the intercession of Christ. It says in verse 46 that after he had taken leave of them, after they had been sent off, right? The kids had been sent off to school. He went up on the mountain to pray. So what is Jesus praying in this time alone with the Father on the mountain? Why is he praying? Well, perhaps he's praying for himself. Perhaps he is praying for his followers. Mark mentions three instances in his gospel of Jesus praying. Here they are. Number one, 
in chapter 1. As his earthly ministry is beginning, Jesus spends time in prayer. Mark highlights that. Here, in the middle of of this gospel, after feeding the 5,000, Jesus is again in communion with the Father. And then finally, in the garden. Right? In, In the garden of Gethsemane, just before going to the cross, in chapter 14. And so as the pressure mounts upon Jesus, and there is real pressure, we're talking of a mob that is desired to take Jesus and catapult him into this position of leadership and authority on an earthly level. Jesus seeks intimacy with the Father and prayer, that he might be strengthened in the face of mounting pressure from those around him, even those who are closest to him. This isn't the last time that we're going to see Jesus experiencing some degree of, of outside pressure from those around him, right? Uh, pursuing him or seeking to persuade him against going to the cross. Even those that are closest to him would would do so, right? We see later on this conversation between Peter and Jesus in which Jesus concludes the conversation by saying, get behind me, Satan. Like, this is the way that we're going. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the cross. Jesus spends time alone in, in fellowship with the Father, in prayer to the Father that he might not yield to popular acclaim, but continue in accordance with the scriptures. I love what Timothy Keller says about prayer and the purpose of prayer and how we see it modeled through Jesus's prayer and time with the Father here. He says this, that the basic purpose of prayer, this is so good, the basic purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to mine, but instead to mold my will to his. Right, even at the garden, the prayer of Christ was genuine, in which he said, Not my will, but your will be done. And so, again, we ask this question Do you and I hold to the same desire? What does our prayer life look like? Right? Like what is our, my prayer life oftentimes communicates that, I'm, that I'm, I'm totally cool with God just aligning his will with what I would desire for my own life. And I would venture to say that many of us in this room are probably in a similar place. But what we see displayed here is a commitment to the will of the Father to, to, a, to such radical extent that there is this intentional and purposeful and intimate time in which the Son and the Father are enjoying this communion with one another, that, that the Son's will, that his desire in the face of mounting pressure might continue down this path that the Father has laid forth. On multiple occasions, we see Jesus pray for his followers. So not only is he praying for, I would, I would venture to guess, um, what is going on in his own, own life and ministry and personal experience at this time in light of what has just happened and in light of where he's going, right? But also prayer for his followers. In John chapter 17, we see Jesus in, in prayer for his disciples to his followers, petitioning that the Father would not take them out of the world, but that he would sanctify them and that his followers would know the intimacy that he enjoys with the Father. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus says, Man, Simon, Satan has sought to sift you like wheat. But guess what? I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. In Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is what? Even now, based on what Paul writes here in his letter to the Romans, who even now intercedes for us. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since why? Since he always lives to make intercession for him. 
And so let's consider the great encouragement that we see upon the disciples being sent off on this, what is going to become a very turbulent boat ride, right? The masses have been sent away. What does Jesus do? Well, he, he, he seeks isolation. Right? He seeks isolation. He seeks time alone with the Father. Right? That his will might continue to be, to be maintained in, in alignment with the will of, of, of God. In the face of mounting pressure, difficulty, temptation that you and I are totally incapable of even beginning to comprehend, that he would remain committed. And that his followers, as their minds are being totally overwhelmed with all that they are learning from Jesus, that their faith might continue to grow. That their faith might continue to grow. The third thing that we see is the assurance of Christ. Look at verses 47 through 50 with me. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw... And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to pass them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were, what, terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Man, the assurance of Christ here in this short, in this short section. Let's imagine the scene for a moment. It's between three in the morning and six in the morning. And in the process of crossing over to the other side of the sea, the disciples have been blown way out from the land and further towards the middle. They, they likely, as they set out initially, would have, have stayed fairly close to shore, right? Because the further you get out, the, the, the crazier uh, the seas get, right? And so we're going to stay pretty close to land. We're going to venture over here. We're gonna, that's the way we're going to kind of go. But in the process, they've been blown way out. We see Jesus alone on the mountain, praying to the Father, and he sees. Now, these guys have been rowing for some time now. Okay, now it's slow and it's arduous, but they have been rowing. And so when we see Jesus seeing here, let us understand that this is yet again another supernatural act on behalf of Jesus. It's not as though he's, he's you know, kind of standing up there on top of this mountain with one of those, um, what, are, what are those things, those, those binocular things you like put quarters in that like swivel around that you can like look. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? The big metal things. Have I ever used one of those before? Do they work? Like, I don't know. I don't know that I've never, they're everywhere, but I never see people using them. Um, but, but he's not hanging out up on top with one of these, like, you know, thing where he can, like, check out what's going on. In the same way that he saw the turbulence that they would enter into as they were sent into the boat and cast off of the shore, he now sees supernaturally what they are experiencing. His disciples battling the wind and the sea. And so, Again, out of the same heart of compassion that led to the feeding of the 5,000, he sets out for them. Walking. On the water. <laughs> right? Like, like miles. In the dark. Okay? Knowing where they are and knowing exactly what they are going through, Jesus makes his way towards those whom he loves. And we see in verse 48 the phrase, he meant to pass by them. Now there's a, a handful of interpretations for verse 48. I'll give you a few of them and then we'll talk about uh, I think the one that's Correct. <laughs> okay. The first was that Jesus wanted to surprise his disciples, right? Like, like some kind of twisted game of like peekaboo, right? 
that he was going to sneak up on him and that he was going to surprise him. He's going to make his way to the other side. And like after all of their struggle, right, that they would finally arrive like dead, right? And he would just be there like hanging out. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's the, the right interpretation. Or another one say maybe he was testing their, their faith or even that Jesus had, had intended to pass by them, but then he saw them in distress and kind of called an audible like, whoa, you guys are having a really hard time. Like, why don't I do something about this? Which doesn't make any sense in light of the fact that we see earlier on that it says that he's on top of the mountain and he sees them, right? And it's difficult and it's hard. I think that if we allow the Old Testament to inform the way that we read the New Testament here, we see that a better understanding is available. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, we see Moses ask the Lord to see his glory. Really bold request, right? Perhaps you're familiar with this. On the mountain, right, with, with the Lord, right? And he, he asks, he makes this request, this petition to see his glory. Glory In verses 20 through 23, we see the Lord's response. Again, this is Exodus chapter 33. You don't have to turn there. I'll read for us. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. This is God's response to the request of Moses, verse 21. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while My glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until what? Until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. We see a very similar scene unfold in 1 Kings chapter 19 between the Lord and Elijah. In Mark chapter 6, we see Jesus presenting himself as God. Through this act of of passing by that was intended to display his glory for his followers, the same way that we see in Exodus chapter 33, the Lord passing by, that, that Jesus is seeking to bring his disciples into the fold a little bit deeper at this point. Right, that they might indeed see his, his glory. Only they couldn't see. Right? Not yet. Uh, not yet anyway. And they responded the same way, I guess, that you and I would respond. Oh my gosh, a sea ghost, right? <laughs> that, that's, this is the kind of the consensus that they come to uh, within the boat, And still, we see Mark chooses to focus in on Jesus here. We can see other accounts in which Peter is called out of the boat. And this is the whole walking on the water scene, right? But what Mark does is he highlights, he stays focused in on Jesus. And the assuredness that we receive from his actions of his deity. Accomplishing something, get this, accomplishing something that only God is capable of doing, walking on water, while at the same time comforting his fearful followers. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. That's the message of Jesus. Jesus offers assurance of his deity, of his godness through his walking on the water. He offers assuredness that his followers, along with his presence, comes, which leads us finally to the persistence of Christ, the patient persistence of Christ. Verse 51. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Here, Mark describes a Christophany. What do you mean by that? Well, here's what we mean. Jesus is revealing himself to the disciples, but we see that their unbelief and their terror prevented them to some degree from comprehending all that was taking place in this moment. Mark attributes this in part to their failure to understand the loaves. 
He goes all the way back to the feeding of the 5,000. Perhaps they understood or saw it more as a miracle of multiplication. But but our understanding of the feeding of the 5,000 is informed by what we see here in verses 51 and 52. What we are designed to, what we ought to, what is intended that we would see is an indication of the true identity of Jesus. It's not simply a miracle of, the multipli- of a multiplication in the feeding of the 5,000. Although perhaps that is something that the disciples themselves are stumbling over as they're presented with the passing by, the glory of Christ. What we are intended to see is the true identity of Jesus. Had they seen this, then they would recognize Jesus as he approached them on the water. One commentator said this, this verse contains one of the hardest statements about the disciples' lack of understanding. Even so, they were still followers of Jesus and not enemies. He says this is marking irony at its boldest. We see the persistence of Christ and his continued commitment to speak truth to his followers in spite of their failure to see. Even through their abandoning of him during his trial and crucifixion, he continues to teach of the kingdom of God, knowing that what is currently terrifying for his people, right, his glory and his person, would become their source of rest in the midst of terror following the resurrection, and the coming of the Spirit as eyes are opened to his kingship. Jesus continues to pursue his people, never giving up on us, even through his suffering upon the cross. One well-known pastor said it like this, if his suffering did not make him give up on us, nothing will. What we see here in Mark chapter 6 is a foreshadowing to an even greater commitment, an even greater patience, an even greater persistence on behalf of Jesus on the cross. And so we see through this passage the mission of Christ to possess the crown by way of the cross, dying in the stead, in the place of sinners, in accordance with the Father's plan to rescue his rebellious people through the perfect sacrifice of his son. Hang with me, we're landing this thing now. Transforming his followers, even through difficulty, that they might know him more deeply. And so here's a series of questions that I want us to consider. Do you see this morning the great compassion of Christ for sinners? Do you see yourself as a sinner in need of the great compassion of Christ? Whose way are you following? Whose way are you following? Is it, is it your way? Is it the world's way? Is it the culture's way? Or is it the way of Christ? The disciples are made to get into the boat, and they get into the boat. At times difficult, but always for our good, as personal holiness is fostered in our lives through difficult experiences, always bringing us to a deeper awareness of the sufficiency of Jesus and his ability to provide a transcendent contentment. We see the intercession of Christ. We see the assurance of Christ. In Mark chapter 6, Christ offers assurance to his disciples rooted in his person and character, designed to lead them out of fear and into contentment. Tim Challies says this. This is a lengthy quote. Lean in. I'm I'm asking for two more minutes, and then we're going to the table. Tim Challies says this. As we reflect on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can be assured that the wrath of God has been absorbed by Jesus for his people. Man, that is incredibly comforting. We can build our assurance on the fact that Jesus Christ died having accomplished all that was necessary to reconcile us to God. His work was a work of completion. The question that we face as believers is, do we believe this? 
Right? Do we believe that Jesus actually accomplished his mission, that we see him setting his face towards in verse 45? In his first letter to Timothy, Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Did Jesus accomplish what he came to do? Or did he merely allow the possibility of that work being accomplished? When we understand that Christ's work is a work of completion, we find, here it is, great comfort. When we understand that Christ's work is a work of completion, we find great comfort. It is not a work that remains to be done, but a work that has been done, that has been accomplished, and that has been accepted by the Father. What good news. And lastly, the persistence of Christ. Jesus will indeed rescue his people. We believe that because passages like this one inform the way that we understand the pursuit of Christ and his commitment to the mission. And so when we ask, how do we respond? How are we encouraged from what we see here this morning towards mission, gospel engagement? It's something we've talked about a lot over the past few weeks. Understand that our commitment to mission flows from the realization that Christ has accomplished the mission, right? That the mission is, 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 is completed, right? That it is indeed finished. That the blood of the righteous one reconciles sinners to God as repentance is expressed and belief is, is captured hold of, right? And so let our mission be encouraged by the realization, the understanding that God has accomplished it, and now he equips his people for this very same work. In the face of difficulty, in the face of trial and hardship, right, that God has accomplished the mission. And the empty tomb is evidence of that. And so let us, as a body, as a fellowship, be encouraged this morning by the resurrection of Jesus. Yet again, let's pray together. Father, thank you. For our time in your word today. Thank you for the truth that we see from Mark chapter 6, the, the, the commitment of Christ to the mission, that be our redemption, our forgiveness through his spilled blood, through the power of the cross and the resurrection. Your commitment to our transformation, your commitment to our personal holiness. Father, we're grateful that you are patient and that you are long-suffering and that you continue to work in radical and miraculous ways. We pray that you would soften our hearts even now to these truths, that we might be encouraged by the character of Christ, that we might be encouraged yet again by the hope of the gospel, that we might, as we go to the table here again this morning, do so joyfully, knowing that we approach in boldness as Christ makes intercession for us at your right hand that we approach the table in boldness and with confidence, knowing that we are indeed your children, not a result of anything that we have done, but holy in who you are and what you have done. That is good news. Man, give us, give us reason to celebrate that right now. Make that real to us as we enjoy this time together as a fellowship. We love you, and we are eternally and forever grateful for your love for us. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.